Hey, this is Dr. Rob Orman, and you are listening to Stimulus, a podcast that deconstructs ideas and strategies to live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. Here we go. Hello, my friends, and welcome to Stimulus Episode 11. Our guest today is Z-Dog MD, who many of you probably know from his interviews, opinion pieces, his hip-hop medical music videos, all totaled over half a billion downloads. And if the name Z-Dog MD is new to you, he was born Zubin Damania. Z-Dog is kind of the character he created to get his message across. He's an internist, hospitalist, healthcare evangelist, really, dedicated to turning the practice of medicine into the healing art it should be rather than the leviathan of bureaucracy, roadblocks, and nonsense that it sometimes seems to be. And he is my only friend with the Wikipedia page. We'll get back to Z-Dog in a few minutes, but first, and I don't need to tell you this because chances are you're living it, the second wave of COVID-19 is upon us. And just in time for that, we are starting to see the first glimmer of light of some solid clinical data on COVID management. Let's be honest, how this played out in the first few months, somewhat out of necessity, I think, was medicine by anecdote. There was no data. There was just experience. There was observation. And the literature that came out, I would call it more literature than research, was certainly not up to the rigorous standard that we would see in the normal turn of events. But of course, this was not the normal turn of events. This was a pandemic with a new virus that had a behavior pattern that was being revealed on the daily. And the dialogue between clinicians, between hospitals, between countries was how this was managed. But now we are seeing the scientific method recovering. For example, the recovery trial. Holy crap cakes, is that an awesome acronym? Recovery. It's like the acronym of the year so far. Stands for Randomized Evaluation of COVID-19 Therapy. And chances are you've heard of recovery, even if you didn't know the name. And this is the study that found that steroids reduce mortality in certain COVID patients. Here's a quick rundown of the recovery trial. Not the usual stuff that we talk about on the show, the specifics of the clinical medicine. We do that elsewhere. But I don't know. This was such big news. And there's a really interesting twist on it at the end. So the recovery trial included patients with clinically suspected or laboratory-confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infection. Patients received either the steroid dexamethasone, 6 milligrams a day for up to 10 days, or usual care. The primary outcome here was 28 days mortality. And that was all cause mortality. It wasn't that, oh yes, you died from COVID, just if you died. This was over 6,000 patients. 4,000 got the usual treatment. 2,000 got dexamethasone. Overall, taking all the comers that got dexamethasone, a benefit with a number needed to treat of 33. Treat 33 patients to save one life at 28 days. Not too shabby. Now, when it gets broken down into the specific groups, people who were on supplemental oxygen, just supplemental oxygen, had a number needed to treat of 29. All right, not too bad. But the real shocker, shocking in a good way, was for ventilated patients they had a number needed to treat of 8.5. That is incredible. What that looked like on the big scale was that 40% of intubated patients who didn't get dexamethasone died versus a 29% mortality for intubated patients 
who did get dexamethasone. And here's another fascinating thing about this. Patients not on respiratory support, so not intubated, not getting oxygen, had a trend toward harm. It was just a trend towards harm with dexamethasone. And we're going to have links in the show notes to some excellent write-ups on this. You can shake down all the details. We're not going to go into depth here. Just wanted to bring that up. And also the other side of the coin, which is so ironic, the science on this looks so robust. You can read the PDF. It's available for free. It's a well-done study. There are, of course, weaknesses with how it was done, as there are with any study. But earlier, I was saying how great it is that legit science is finally happening with COVID. But this paper, with all its fanfare, at the time of this recording, has not been peer-reviewed. You could say it was peer-reviewed by the planet because it was gobbled up like snacky cakes. People were so hungry for data. But it still hasn't finished the official machinations before true publication. So maybe the scientific method is returning. It's just doing so in its own phased manner, just like the rest of society. Okay, now onto our interview with ZDog MD. This is going to be different from our usual fare. We usually focus on specific skills and strategies for kicking ass and working life. And what you're about to hear, it's a conversation. Just a lot of different stuff ZDog and I hash through. We talk about the morality of masks and not wearing them in public. Surprising that it's become like a moral and political issue, but it has. Something called the virtue signal. Talk about racism. What was surprising about the ascent of COVID? We get a little deeper into the suspension of the scientific method, both good and bad in the early stages of the pandemic. Why safety doesn't seem to get the love it deserves in the big picture. This is high mind stuff. I mean, Z-Dog's a high minded guy. Very cerebral. But the first three minutes of this conversation are not high-minded. For the first three minutes, we talk about Star Wars. If you're a Star Wars fan, it's going to resonate. You'll dig it. If not, it's going to be three minutes of WTF. Or maybe you're going to be hitting the 15-second advance button like a woodpecker hunting for bugs in an oak tree. Either way, here we go. With Zubin Nemanja, a.k.a. ZDogMD. No formal training. Hey, I like your glasses, dude. Thank you, baby. Th- those are extreme glasses. Those are like <laughs> ER glasses, man. <laughs> the world can't see this, but I can see it. And I can also see your shirt. Like you've become 90% hipper since the last time. <laughs> are you woke or something? This, this is from one of my favorite movies from the 80s that I used to watch weekly with my neighbor, Alex Jaffe, called The Last Dragon. You ever see The Last Dragon? Ooh, I never saw it. Oh, this is a t-shirt of Shonuff, who is the Shogun of Harlem. And that's, he a, was, that's amazing. He was the villain. And but anyway, speaking of movies, my daughter, who's 15, came up to me the other day and she said, Dad, I feel like there is a gap in my life knowledge. I've never watched any Star Wars movies. What? Yeah. So my son was fully indoctrinated. Like his, when he first got email, he named it after a Star Wars character. I mean, and he, he knows it all. And she, I said, I, you know, when she was younger, I said, Hey, let's watch. He said, I'm not too interested. Then at 15, she was ready. But then the question was, how do you introduce Star Wars to someone who has never seen it now that they're all out there? Right. Uh-huh. So there's apparently like somebody named Machete who has like, here's the order that you do. And I've seen it. Here's what we did. I'm curious to see what your thoughts are. You got to start at four because if you start at episode one. You're done. You're just going to cash in your chips. So we went four, five, six, 
one, two, three. And then we watched Rogue One, right? Because it comes between three and four. So you get up to three and then you watch Rogue One. And then right after we watched Rogue One, the power of video, we watched four immediately afterwards, like the beginning of it, so that you could see the, the continuity Transition. of the timeline. And then yeah. seven, eight, nine. Oh, I think that's pretty good. What's your verdict on nine, my friend? I like it. And I was actually looking at the Rotten Tomatoes reviews and Rotten Tomatoes gives it a thumbs down. Yeah. It was one of the least popular Star Wars movies by critical review. But it's funny, the first time I saw it, I hated it. I was like, this is garbage. I saw it with my kids because of the way they tied everything up. They just pulled stuff out of their butt. But then I watched it on the replay and I was like, you know what? They did the best they could given momentum going into it. They just did what they had to do. And I was like, you know what? It's all good. Kylo, you know, the whole thing. Yeah. He has his arc. Yeah, he has an arc. Yeah, he he completes you know? the arc of the Skywalker, and then of course she. I, you know what? I'm not going to leave. No spoilers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly, because that's that's not the purpose of your podcast. You know, to spoil. There should be a podcast that's just nothing but spoilers. That's the name of the podcast. Like you just tune in when you want to just just be destroyed, devastated, <laughs> have any sense of artistic integrity ruined for anything you could possibly watch. I think know? we found our new calling, buddy. I'm in. Yeah. I'm in. If you're in, I'm in too. The, the, leading, the leading voice of movie spoilers. That's right. That's right. This summer, here's what happens at the end of every movie. <laughs> and it just, it's the same trailer voice guy, you know? Actually, you could be a good trailer voice because you have that radio voice. Every time I talk to you now, you're in, you're in this condo. The listeners, Zubin used to have this studio in Vegas and it was all kind of hip and, you know, you'd walk in and there were like 5,000 Z-Dog branded this and that's. And now you rented out a condo and you've got this one room that's a, that's a studio and, and the rest of it is empty. It, I mean, it's a little silence of the Lambsy, a little, I just, I'm not going to be, I'm going to be honest, but. I'd tape me. I'd tape <laughs> me so hard. <laughs> But but now you're always there. You're always there. And before, like getting a hold of you was impossible because you were public speaking all the time, right? You were always f- yeah, flying traveling. everywhere. And 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 now I'd say you are a YouTube polemicist. That's that's my job description for you. A, a YouTube polemicist. You, what do you call yourself? The leading health healthcare's leading voice. Healthcare's I don't know. It's, authentic. It, I made it up. Healthcare's yeah, authentic voice was like how I was feeling that day. It's something incredibly douchey. Yes, incredibly douchey. I mean, it, it could have been like it could have been like Kevin MD's like healthcare is only social media voice or whatever he says. <laughs> I modeled it on him. I learned it from watching you, Dad. I learned it from watching you. All right. Okay. Yeah. So, so now now you're pretty much full time YouTube polemicist, not doing public speaking, and you know we we both go to conferences here and there, and they've all dried up for now. I mean, do you think that yeah. that is changed for good? Like you know, like these big events, conferences, public speaking? I actually don't, you know, because people are already planning 2021 and I'm getting these invitations and I, I don't think they will because you cannot, you can't replace the in-person thing. Like Zoom is cool, but I get Zoom fatigue and I think anyone who has any extra version just wants to be out with people occasionally. Yeah. Although, you know, it's weird though, Rob, like I, it, this has been, this pandemic has been the greatest thing that's ever happened to me personally because I realized I don't like people. Like I actually, I like them in the abstract, but what I like is some solitude and I like connecting to them en masse through a lens because then I lose my sense of self. Like it actually dissolves into this 
bigger than myself kind of scenario. It's a true like losing yourself. Like when Eminem says, you better lose yourself in the system. He's, he's That's what he's talking about is that performance uh, flow state. I get to attain from this little condo in the middle of the Bay Area and it's been wonderful. When you're talking into the camera, like you, you kind of have these polemics, right? You're just putting out so many solo videos of here's my opinion on this. Here's what I think about this. Here's what I think you should think about this. Who are you talking to in your mind's eye? Who is on the other side of that? Or are you kind of in your head? Mm. It's really interesting because when, okay, if you and I talk in person, you've probably noticed this about me. I don't make very good eye contact. I'm usually shifting around, looking at my feet, kind of talking in it. I'll make brief eye contact, then I'll think of something else, I'll be tangential. In that case, I know exactly who I'm talking about. Another separate self who sees me as a separate self and there's this kind of interesting striving that goes on mentally for me where I'm self-conscious, literally conscious that I'm a separate self. It's interesting because I've thought about this recently during this pandemic. But when I do a polemic or a live show, let's let's think about the live shows because those are where I think I enter those flow states. So I'm looking at a lens. I'm doing it right now because I'm in the studio. I'm looking at the lens. And what I see in my mind's eye is a open empty space that's awake, that is listening to me. And it's like losing yourself in a field of human beings. And what comes out of me then is drawn out into a kind of a flow state. It's not even me, it's like arising and going out without much censorship. It's such a rush and an addictive quality that I love it more than almost anything else. I mean, it's just amazing. How do you get into that flow state. I mean, do you, do you have a sequence of events or like a ritual or a mantra to, to turn it on? Or is it just you start talking? Is there a preparation or is it just a natural progression of filming yourself? There's probably a Pavlovian behavioral component to it. So I, I have a whole process by which I stream live. And it's true for the recorded stuff too. I get into a head state where my team says, okay, or I just hit record and I'm like, okay, I'm in this space where I'm talking to a bunch of people, like at a performance where you just lose yourself in this audience. And seeing the Facebook thing go live, seeing the number of viewers start to ratchet up, launches me into a state of mind where I'm like, oh, I'm now connected to a whole bunch of people in a way that was never possible. And this is all unconscious. And then it draws out of me whatever I really want to say. It may not be what I mean to say. Like a lot of times I go on these things with this intention. I have this mental framework. I'm gonna talk about these things and I never script anything out ever. It's always this kind of thing. And, and sometimes it leads me down paths where I say things that I would never have consciously decided to say, but I don't regret it. But man, it goes hard sometimes. And sometimes I might hurt some feelings because I'm saying what I really think. But it's that Pavlovian surrounding of seeing the process unfold on the laptop, seeing the red light on the camera, camera, uh, seeing the comments streaming in real time. It, it, it's all that together puts me in that state. It's interesting that you say that, you know, it, it's unscripted. And I was curious about what the process was for those extemporaneous videos that, I mean, there's no cuts. Yeah. I had to make a two minute video the other day, you know, and it was a very simple message and I kind of wrote it out. I thought I was going to say, I kind of knew what I was going to say. I practiced it a couple of times. And it's still at the end looked like something from Gordon Ramsay's Hell's Kitchen that it was chopped up with steak knives and like, like these rough cuts chopping to here and there. I was, like, I was like, man, how on earth? I mean, I guess that once you get into the flow and you get practiced and comfortable just kind of riffing on it, it's, it's easier. But how does that develop? Do you have kind of a structure in your mind of the points you want to hit? Or is it just, I'm fired up about this issue and 
whatever comes, comes. Yeah, what a great question because, you know, when I, I used to do it that way, Rob, the way you just described, I would do these little rants and chop them up and like do the YouTube style, like clip, 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 jump cuts and that kind of thing. And what I found is no one cared. No one, it was, you know, I could have written that out and it would have been better. But for my style, what I find is I often go in with an outline in my head. Okay, these are the basic things I want to talk about in this video. They're going to connect in real time to into a flow and a pattern. It's not gonna be perfect, I'm gonna forget stuff. And I already understand that. That's why like, you know, somebody like Dr. Mike, who's very successful on YouTube with prepared stuff is very thorough and researched and does it. I do all my research in advance and then I let it come out in a state that I would teach it to somebody that I know. And um, so sometimes it's missing stuff, sometimes I misspeak, but when it works, it fires in a way that people connect with because they know that it's authentic. It's not a, because so much of what we do, right, Rob, is like this prepared, like, oh, I apologize in advance for the complexity of the slides. Um, <laughs> and I'll, I'll, I will get back to that in a later point in the slides, you know, and, and, and when they see just this guy going, okay, here's the deal with morality and masks and why the two are so intertwined in our current discourse. And here's what you need to know. And because it's coming from a place where I've tried to integrate it. Now I, I fail more often than I succeed, but when I succeed, I'm proud. I'm like, wow, that was a real flow state. I felt it, 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 the audience responded to it. And you get that immediate feedback in terms of engagement and comments, views, that kind of thing, which is nice. I'm gonna tell you, man, that I fall on the side of the fundamentalist for wearing a mask in public. And I, I see it like paying taxes. It's not that you are going to benefit directly from paying taxes, but that's kind of part of the social covenant that you have with the country or the community. It's for the benefit of society. I mean, nobody likes paying taxes. I don't like wearing a freaking mask all day and, you know, outside, whatever. When I see, I was in Lowe's Home Improvement Center yesterday, and 90% of the people weren't wearing masks. Some were. Mm. When I see people walking around without masks, especially in enclosed space, I go internally cataplectic and i got back in the car my wife was waiting in the car and she said i can tell you're upset and i said yes i am and she said is it because no one was wearing a mask inside <laughs> like, yes it is what what is the deal from a public health standpoint i don't see how it doesn't make sense and there you know it's just some article on japan saying you know why is japan doing well it's one reason is because Everybody wears a mask all the time. Mm. Maybe. I mean, who, who mm. knows? It was just, you know, an article. But what what is the deal? Why isn't it just this socially accepted norm that, okay, now we are mask people? Right. This is so interesting to me because I've had to evolve my thinking on masks because when CDC initially said don't wear masks, they were trying to save the frontline healthcare workers from PPE shortages. So that made sense. Then they were saying, well, okay, maybe cloth masks as a way to ameliorate that. But I was like, is there any good data? This is the problem is there isn't great data in the wild for the public wearing masks. There's anecdote, there's correlation. So some very smart people I know too that are epidemiologists were like, well, we just, it's, it's interesting because we actually don't have the answer to this. We have some speculation. The question is what's the harm in saying, let's try this. And the only things that we could come up with for harm are, well, then people are touching their face more, they're wearing them wrong, they have a false sense of security, they're not social distancing, they're um, that, that sort of thing. But honestly, so initially I was like, I think cloth masks, I don't know how smart they are, but then I would wear a surgical mask out, right? Because I care about 
not infecting anyone else. I'm right, less worried right. about myself. But then, so it's funny. So I thought myself a fairly agnostic on the mask issue emotionally, but I'm a liberty versus oppression guy too. So I, I don't like people telling me what to do, but that's, I'm willing to sacrifice that for health. Then I went to Vegas this last weekend to shoot a music video. First travel since the pandemic because they opened it up and it was it, uh, mask the whole time for me, get on Southwest, perfect social distancing. Southwest felt more safe than some grocery stores that I've been in the way that they set it up. It was amazing. San Francisco airport that people behaved like perfect public health warriors because they've been conditioned by this establishment here. Land in Vegas, it is a shit show. Like every single person in McCarran airport wasn't wearing a mask. They were crowded at the bars. I get, I stand in a big, I'm wearing a mask the whole time. I stand in the big long line and uh, for the rental car because now I'm a tourist in my own former hometown. And I sit down and this woman, not wearing a mask, sits right in between me and an elderly lady. There were plenty of other seats, decides completely to avoid social distancing. No one's wearing a mask except for me on this whole bus. And she says, I'm just gonna sit between you two and sits down. At which point she starts coughing directly into her, directly into her hand like this, <laughs> right into her hand. I feel cough air on my arm, Rob. Like, I have never been that angry. And I was angry on behalf of the elderly woman next to her. Then I look at the elderly woman and I'm like, you don't care enough about your health to even wear a mask yourself. So I did the one thing I'd never do. And I thought, swore I'd never do. I virtue signaled. I stood up, I got the hell up and I walked to the front of the bus and I stood, even though there was all these seats around her. And I was like, I'm gonna, that's my statement. I'm just not gonna be near someone who's behaving like wait a, a second, jackass. Wait a second. What is that? Is a virtue signal a passive aggressive way of telling somebody you don't want them coughing on you? I've never even heard that term before. Virtu <laughs> well, you never heard virtue the term? signal? So, oh my it's God. It's an interesting term. It's been co-opted by the right, but what it really means is it's when somebody goes on social media or somewhere else and makes a big show of how virtuous they are about whatever it is, whether they're talking about racism, I think the police should be defunded. And it's like a white person who's never encountered the police, who has some deep guilt about their own racist beliefs. And so they virtue signal by saying, I'm a good person, I'm gonna say this. But in reality, it does nothing but make that person feel better, right? So in this case, I was virtue signaling by standing up and pointing out that I was gonna have it. But it was actually also a behavioral signal, which is like, I don't wanna get infected and I'm gonna make sure this person knows. Because if I get in her face, you know, first of all, I'd have to talk to her and she's not wearing a mask. <laughs> so, you know, and you know, there's some interesting data on virtue signaling. So there was a study that, that they looked at people's guilt levels and it was a rather complex psychological study. And they said, people who, if you show them like, okay, here's sweatshops in China and how they make your shoes. Now, you know you wear these shoes. You know you participate in this, right? But if we show you that and then give you an opportunity to blame a third party, Nike, and you go and do that online, Nike should be ashamed of themselves. When we measure your scores for guilt later, they are low. If we don't give you that outlet, we measure your scores for guilt, they are much higher. And so this idea of publicly blaming a third party, virtue signaling, is a way to make ourselves feel less guilty for something we feel complicit in, whether it's racism or sweatshops or whatever it is. So it's human nature to wanna to do that. So many questions on this. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't even the main topic we were gonna talk about today. <laughs> I wanna talk about racism. You put out a video, I don't know, it was a couple weeks ago, on George Floyd and the response and healthcare. I mean, just, it was this incredible story arc. We'll link to it in the show notes. It was. We actually had our kids watch it 
Mm. It was like 11 at night and, you know, they're watching YouTube and this and that and Star Wars. And okay, kids, we have got a 15 and a 17. This is a good friend of mine who is, you know, putting out an important message. And okay, so, so first off, how to possibly turn your kids off to something. (laughs) 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 And we all watched the video, you know, and it brought up discussions, like really intense discussions. And we were pausing it. I don't want to rehash the entire thing. Uh, Listeners, if you you want, check it out. You may have even seen it. It was just absolutely beautiful. And I'll tell you, man, when I saw that, I've never been more proud to be your friend when when I saw that. And it's made me think about a couple of things. And I want to, want to get your thoughts. And let me, let me ask you this. When you were a kid, did you ever get bullied because of your race? Right. I, I, I did actually, because I grew up in, not when I was on the East Coast. I found the East Coast to be pretty tolerant and diverse, actually. It's when I moved to the Central Valley of California, Clovis, California, small little farming town. Parents bought a private practice out there. We're in practice. We had like two and a half acres of orange orchard. The kids there just never seen minorities apart from Latinos. And I had this weird name and it was during, just after the Iran hostage crisis. So I would tell people, you know, I'm Indian, but of Iranian descent, that was a terrible idea because then I was, you know, this Iranian. And so I did, I got, I had a lot of that and it didn't help that I was chubby and stuff too, made it very tough. So I encountered it on that level. And my father definitely encountered it, thick accent, Indian guy, only patients who would see him were Medicaid patients, which who he grew to love, right? So I, I experienced it in that way, but not nearly to the level that say, you know, an African-American or black person would experience it, but it was enough to make me go, oh, this exists. I could never deny it exists. It's a real thing. It affected me that way. When I was a kid growing up in Baltimore, I lived there till I was nine or 10. And I remember I went to this one school that was, it was pretty rough. And some of the kids there found out I was Jewish. Mm. It was the most frightened I've ever been in my life. Wow. And this was the same time. I can, actually, I've, I can really feel it inside. I, I've, got, I've got such anxiety even talking about this, that this is the same time that the Holocaust was on TV with Meryl Streep and that, you know, that miniseries. Yeah. And it was just, I felt like I needed to hide Ooh. every day. I needed to hide that I was Jewish. Mm. And, and in many other areas of life. It's an advantage, or at least not a disadvantage. But it was almost like like we had an episode with Christina Shenvey recently talking about acting with agency and all this, and also learned helplessness. Mm. And that's this cycle of fear and and like almost shame of who you are. Mm. And it was so I, you know, when I went to different schools, kind of hit it. I would never mention it. It was definitely mm. never out in the open. And mm. like even like even saying it out loud. It feels weird. I mean, it's like, it's who I am. I mean, like, yeah, I did uh, 23 and Me, and I think I'm like 93% Ashkenazi Jew. Like, I, nice. I, couldn't, I couldn't be any more Jewish. I don't practice the religion, but genetically, that is who right. I am. I've seen like just a tiny splinter of this entire tree that someone who is African-American or is discriminated upon or is, you know, acted upon violently because of their race and nothing else. You know, like there's this Mm. video on Facebook or YouTube with several black doctors telling the times that they're pulled over by police or they're waiting outside of a restaurant and the police come and say, hey, these people are nervous that you're here. And it's like, I'm just waiting for my daughter, man. Like that, and that is just such a bigger thing because that's out in the open. You know, you can't hide from that. 
it's such an intensely emotional thing for me and have a public voice and like this show stimulus talks about stuff that's like this and i've had listeners say you should talk to this guy about racism i'm like you know that feels like oh yeah uh, us too we're against racism and now's the time and it feels so hollow and disingenuous I quake at the core of my being over this utter bullshit and systemic horridness. What to do here? What you just highlighted is exactly why this is such, and you said it, such an emotional issue for so many people, because you are being judged on something that you cannot control. Your only sense of control is to hide from it, like you tried to do, or to or to do, uh, have other coping mechanisms, and it's unfair. It's a fundamental unfairness. I'm born like this. Why is it that I have to, and I felt that way too, and the thing, what's weird is as I've gotten older, I've been able to detach from that and try to look rationally at all sides. Like what would force, what would, what happened to someone that turns them into a racist, that they would behave this way? Is it conditioning? Is it society? Is it genetics? Is it all those things? How do we fix that? Because you're right, you don't legislate this. You have to change fundamentally how people work in society together, how they start to be conditioned. And I think our younger generation is already starting to experience this. You know, your story of being Jewish during this time and, and that the shame component, I've experienced that. But you know who else experienced that was um, the author Sam Shem, who wrote The House of God. And he was on my show and after the show was over, and. He, I'm sure he would be fine with me sharing this. He told me that part of the reason he became such an advocate for social justice and causes like that, um, and he's a big advocate for healthcare equity, is that when he was growing up in the 60s, Jewish kid on the East Coast, he was beaten up, he was attacked for being Jewish. by And you, if you read The House of God, it's very polarized with the wasps and the Jewish, you know, the House of God being, you know, the Jewish hospital. And what happened was the members of the football team or basketball team at the time were all black. And they came to his defense and they befriended him. And they said, hey, if any of these assholes try to beat you up again, they're gonna have to come through us. And ever since then, he's felt a kinship and a connection to black people, which is you know kind of un just really unparalleled. Oh, and, Mike, and, I get, let, me, let me get a pause here for a second. Yeah. Just, during that time, so Baltimore is a rough town. Yeah. And inner city Baltimore is super rough. So I had a friend who lived in the projects in Baltimore. I don't know if it's called it back then, but you know, kind of dilapidated row houses and and you know, like stickball in an abandoned lot with broken glass and all this stuff. I have never felt just more comfortable, safe place to be. Probably the most violently dangerous place in the country at the time, but it was just this is wonderful. What I detect in that, because I feel it myself, is this being at home as the other with the other others, you know? Right, like, right. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of something that I've always, because I've, I I was weird to begin with, and forget about race. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm an unusual, I'm a Zoroastrian. There's 100,000 of us in the world. Like, talk about a minority. That's like I mean, not even enough to be discriminated against right now. Yeah. That's right. They don't even know. <laughs> like, you know, they've made parallels with us in India, because that's the biggest diaspora. We're the Jews of India. In a way, they make that both as a compliment and a disparagement. We're the Jews of India because we're business people, and we're bankers, and we're engineers, and we're doctors. And it's disparaging because 
we're business people and engineers and bankers, and there's an elitism and a, we, we only marry within the race. I mean, I married a Chinese woman that was a no-no, you know, like there's all kinds of stuff. And so there's a lot of parallels. So this idea of feeling at home with the other in a really difficult part of Baltimore doesn't surprise me. You know, I always tended to gravitate to people that were a little bit different. Yeah, so taking that one step further, I'm really trying to figure out what to do, what to say on this platform. Because doing it just to do it, because everyone else is doing it, just seems so artificial. I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, I've been vilified on social media, Rob, for not speaking out more about this. They want me to do something that is not in my nature, which is to be inauthentic. They want me to go out there and and hashtag Black Lives Matter and take a knee and do this kind of thing. And I'm like, I've been living my whole life <laughs> with racism. I make the videos that I feel are important about the topic, like the one you saw. I will not be pressured to make symbolic empty gestures to make your guilt feel better. You need to make the gestures you think are important, but I'm not gonna do it. And it is like what you talk about the NFL. It's like, okay, they need to look at their actions and what they did, right? And say, is that concordant with the society we wanna build? And and for me, it's the same thing, you know, and I, I still take heat. And you know what's interesting, Rob? I never care when people criticize me about that stuff because I'm I know who I am. When it does get me to respond carefully is when it's an African-American person. Uh, so I had a African-American orthopedist who was also a woman chastise me on Facebook and say, you know, it's one thing I see you're making these videos, but it's, you know, it seems like you haven't said enough during this very emotional time. And I said, okay, I'm going to message them privately and have this conversation and say, I take this criticism very seriously. Um, let me know, here are the videos I've done. Let me know what you think I could do above and beyond this, because I am very sensitive to even my own biases about this. So let me know. And I trust you as a colleague and someone who's clearly struggled with this, um, looking at your Facebook site. And she wrote back this wonderful message where it was just the act of connection and being heard that was important, right? It was this idea that we could uh, actually have a dialogue, a civil discourse, instead of shouting at each other across this chasm of social media that seems to have divided us. And I say seems because we're actually much more connected than the social media artifice would have us believe. So I actually have faith that things are getting better they, they will continue to get better, but we do have to make noise and we do have to understand cultural pivot points like this one. That's really a interesting response that you had. It's very easy to react to that saying, hey, I'm doing me, you do you, leave me the hell alone, especially on social media where things are not thrown as hugs or thrown as jabs. But the response is like the, the exercise of the day. Here, here's an exercise of the day that when someone does criticize you or someone asks you for something, that your response is, okay, well, how can I help? Mm. I mean, it almost sounds like a service industry response, but legitimately, how can I help? How can we make this better? Rather than up yours, leave me alone. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree. One thing about her that struck me is I immediately, and this may be a bias, it may actually be a subtle form of racism that I was dis displaying, but when I saw her in her profile, my first thought was, oh, this person is actually worth, her comments are worthy of my respect because I can't imagine what she's had to overcome as a black woman to become a successful orthopedic surgeon in this society. And 
hearing my mind say that and watching my mind say that, I realized, well, that's a kind of a bias. Like we have no idea what she's been through, but just judging that book by its cover, I was like, this is a person worth listening to because they're way stronger than I would be to be able to accomplish what they've done. And in a way, I wonder if that's an insidious kind of bias that's actually harmful, but that's what was going through my head when I, when I responded. What did she say? What did, did she make suggestions that you then took to heart and put into action? It was to the effect of, thank you for responding. So politely and professionally. And I'll admit that I don't, I haven't reviewed everything that you've done on social media because surprise, I'm busy as a doctor, but I did see this and I know you have this big platform and I know you've been using it for good. So my hope is that you just make sure that you let people know where you stand on your platform because it's important time. And that was perfect feedback because I've made sure to try to do that as much as I can. Let me switch gears a little bit. You've got so many videos about COVID. You just interviewed. <laughs> so guy. tired of COVID. Yeah, you know what? And it's good. Just let's let's just be tired of COVID. We were. Yeah. I know we were both when it first came out, just like cranking it out, crank it out. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, for for various reasons. And looking back on it, you know, as as it was playing out, and now we've got some hindsight, right? It's, it's it was you know kind of ascendant not kind of, it was ascendant for a while. And now it's a, a permanent resident who is going to have some conflagrations from time to time, including right now, including conflagrations yeah. right now. But what surprised you about this? What surprised you about COVID-19? You know, what surprised me the most, because when I started, you can, and the great thing is, look, I don't delete videos. Like if I get something wrong, I leave it up there. And then I do another video where I try to get it more right. And then so people can see my evolution. Some people take it as, oh, remember that time you said cloth masks were dumb? Or remember when you said that like <laughs> the WHO has this under control? I'm like, yeah, I did say that. Because what surprised me was how abjectly incompetent our public health apparatus is in this country and how woefully unprepared we were. And it shouldn't have surprised me given you know the leadership that we have, but it, it, it was shocking to me that people that I've admired and put on a pedestal for most of my career, whether it's CDC, whether it's WHO, these big health organizations, were so uh, in the dark about what to do that it made them look, and this was all messaging, but in some reality, but made them look incompetent. And so there I am initially taking cues from people I know at CDC and others and saying, okay, let's calm everybody down and, you know, be prepared, but don't get anxious. And, and then seeing that just fall apart with a lack of testing and the very delayed response that cost clearly cost lives and not learning the lessons from other countries and having the sense of American exceptionalism, which I think has really harmed us. And that surprised me because I thought we had learned more from things in the past like SARS, et cetera. So that was very, very surprising. And the other thing I, I realized that was surprising is that people actually listen to stuff that I say, which still surprises me so that I have to be very careful what I say because it is gonna influence people, so. It's interesting that you say that. I think that the most successful area of communication was social media, was podcasts, was video, was that experiential exchange of information that here's what's working for us, the you know, frontline healthcare workers then say, all right, what's happening in Italy? Let's bring that on board. Now here's our experience in the US, what's happening here? What are we seeing? Let's get that out there. And it was sometimes hours when a therapy, all anecdote, all anecdote, and we've yeah. obviously seen that that's, even the, the, even the journals are suspect to this, right? Like mm. the scientific process has sort of been you know put on hold. 
that led to, you know, maybe not all of the best therapies because who knows what's going to really come out in the wash as far as surviving and as far as long-term outcomes. But as far as what this looked like and what seems to be working, and here is a rational treatment path, that happened on social media and nowhere else. That didn't happen with any government intervention. That didn't happen with any WHO. That was this guy putting out this story and everybody listened to that story and making it their story. This is a very important topic because yes, absolutely. Social media has, has facilitated this dissemination of information, especially unique information. But what you said is very important, anecdote. There's so much dissemination of anecdote, whether it's hydroxychloroquine, azithro, whether it's zinc, whether it's, you know, don't ventilate people, whether it's, you know, and we have to understand. And I think, you know, Wes Ely came on my show. He's an ICU guy back East. and he was so upset that so much of our standard scientific method and things that we know work in the ICU have been thrown away in the mad rush to find the latest anecdotal approach. And I think, so it's a balance. And the other problem is with social media, and again, I'm playing devil's advocate here because I actually Absolutely. think social media has been very important. Um, the other problem is then you have the the rise of the conspiracy and the politization of this, which is, if you ask me really what I'm surprised about, it, this doesn't surprise me, but it upsets me, is the politization of everything. Politicization. So, you know, if Trump says uh, hydroxychloroquine, then hydroxychloroquine is now the go-to thing. And it's like, that's not how science works. And the same on the left, the left does the same thing. You know, it's like, everybody stay home forever. Okay, let's really weigh that. Does that make sense? When you have three buckets you have to consider, you have to consider the economic destruction, the health destruction, and the social fabric destruction. And there could be an argument made that some of the pent-up rage we're seeing express itself now is because we've also disrupted the fabric of society that ties us together. We're sitting behind social media uh, playing war games instead of out at the bars talking to each other. And I'm not saying we should be out at the bars, but this is it's a real disruption in how humans behave. So it's very complicated and fascinating. And I think it'll take years to kind of really understand the impacts then the change that has happened here. It was interesting about you know Donald Trump saying that he was in favor of chloroquine. He like, here's, here's the miracle cure. And I remember right when this was first starting, it did a podcast with a guy who's a public health officer. And we were talking about that. And this was, there was just a smattering of data on it. You could barely call it data. It was just, oh, it looks like it decreases viral expression over this amount of time. And it's got some impact. And you're thinking, oh my God, people are dying. There's potentially some benefit. And you think this is an extreme case. And I said, if I had pneumonia with this, I'd want it. I'd want chloroquine and zithromax. This is back when that was a thing. And mm. I remember talking to Patrick Reinfried as a doc in Washington. They were the first guys hit in the US by this. Everyone was looking to them to say, okay, how do you do it? So we were talking about their story. I said, well, so are you guys giving people with pneumonia chloroquine and zithromax? He's like, what? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> no, we're not doing that. And I'm thinking, oh, this is crazy. This is crazy. And then, you know, then the data starts coming in. And maybe it doesn't work. Maybe it does work. Maybe it doesn't work. Now we retract this. The adoption of unproven therapies, which could be harmful, right? right? You know, like putting somebody prone for their oxygenation, mm, that's pretty well known. And, you know, the side effects don't seem to be horrible, although there's going to probably be some opportunity costs because of that person's position. But this was, I think back on that, I was feeling so desperate to pass on this information about 
here's the important, latest, greatest little shred of data that, you know, this is the straw that breaks the camel's back that says, yeah, maybe we should do this. And, and now we're seeing the real danger in that, right? Mm. That we should still be adherent to the scientific process. In a pandemic, in, you know, you can call it the fog of war, but in, you know, when there's no information, you need to have some information. But I think that one thing that this has taught us as you're talking about the challenge of social media is that all of this stuff should be taken after a breath, you know, and not just, okay, this is the way to do it. This is the way they're doing it. You know, it's like, okay, what does the data actually show? What's actually happening with this? I think you're absolutely right. And I think that means we strip, ah, this is not the wrong way to say it. We don't strip emotion out of it. We recognize our emotional response and recognize our sort of moral response to this and our own bias and then stop and take a breath. And I have to, man, I have to do that every time before I do, we were talking about going live videos. Before I go live, I have to recognize, okay, what's my bias in this? How's that gonna come out? I should put that out on the table that, you know, this is something that, here's my bias so that you know when I'm saying this, I'm recognizing that I'm coming from a biased position and I want you to know that you need to do some critical thinking to make sure I'm not crazy. Um, you know, it's, it's important. And one thing that hopefully will come out of this is that, you know, like there was just this nurse who did this video. I don't know if you saw it, Rob, about basically this undercover video where she filmed herself at Elmhurst hospital in New York city. And she's a, an anti-vaccine activist who's also a nurse, former ER nurse, went there with a staffing company and, um, with the goal of exposing the COVID, you know, disaster. Right. Yeah. Whether it, she was saying it was a hoax, she talks about chemtrails, she doesn't believe in chemotherapy, you know, says this, this is a person we're dealing with. And she secretly records doctors and nurses at Elmhurst doing their best to take care of patients and then spins it into a video saying, look what they're doing. They're killing these patients on the ventilator. They're putting COVID with non COVID patients. They're overdiagnosing COVID, all this other stuff. And she has a platform in the form of YouTube to put that out there, but people don't have the critical thinking skills to look at it and go, wait, all the red flags of misinformation are here. And there's a mnemonic flick, F-L-I-C-C. The first is F, false experts. She trots out these like ER docs, urgent care docs, docs in the box, going hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin is the best way with zinc to treat this. I mean, who is this guy? <laughs> she poses herself as an expert. She's not an ICU doc. She's not an ICU nurse or a doctor. Um, so false experts and then L logical flaws. So she's, you know, ad hominem talking to these doctors about being murderers. She's displaying just incorrect thinking. Then you have I, which is impossible expectations. So to convince her that they're not murderers, she keeps moving the goalpost. Like the doctor will talk to her and say, well, this is why we're doing this. She's like, well, well but then what about this? Oh, because that's not good enough. What about this? So there are these signs, right? The other C and flick, the first C and flick is um, a conspiracy thinking. So Who's trying to hide this from you? Who follow the money? What are they, you know, Cuomo's doing this and this and that and the other thing. And the last C is cherry picking studies. So she just finds data to support whatever she's saying, regardless of the quality or the opposing data. And so if people had those tools, they could look at this information and tease it out, but they don't. So I think part of my hope is that we can teach them these tools and teach ourselves these tools because I'm a victim of misinformation often as well. You had a video that kind of tangentially relates to this. It was, I think, one of your YouTube polemics <laughs> and <laughs> about safety, about the importance of safety and then the short shrift that safety gets. And actually, I, I wrote down what you said. Oh, that you, you said. Dear. 
how many doctors are out there on social media with their performative wokeness, tisk tisking everyone for racism, demanding that we take a knee when they'll go right back to the hospital, overtreat, forget about safety and not wash their hands. And you know what? And I'll, I'll include doctors. I'll include APPs. I'll include nurses, respiratory therapists. Extra, I'll include any healthcare worker in that. Okay. So everybody, there's not, not just one. I'm going to, you said doctors, I'm putting everybody in. I meant basket. everybody. I meant yeah, everybody. Right. Yeah. They forget about safety and not wash their hands. You said, when we feel guilty about an injustice and we see someone else doing the same thing, you're mentioning this earlier, we make ourselves feel better by publicly calling out the story. But in the hospital, safety, quality, overall quality, right? The quality of our thinking is top-notch and always in the forefront of our mind. But the overall quality is not. Mm. And... I don't know when, when you said it, but people who try to do startups based on quality, on healthcare quality, nobody listens because nobody really cares about quality, right? Like the reimbursement is tied to it. So they care about that. And, you know, they'll be penalized if they don't have quote unquote quality. But you and I have both had several friends, people that we know recently in COVID-19 lose their jobs for speaking out against poor quality. Maybe it was how they spoke out, but they were speaking out against poor quality. That's it. Because the, the way that we're paid for quality is bogus. It's a gameable game. So you just optimize for those parameters. If we actually cared, if we actually cared about safety, quality outcomes, we'd be paid to, to think about that, which means we'd elevate quality science to a kind of art. You know, we would look at IHI and go, okay, what do you have to teach us? Instead of going, oh God, it's more click boxes I have to do, more charting I have to do to document that we've reached these quality measures. The nurses go crazy because all the just charting the whole time instead of talking to the patients. But we don't even wash our hands. I mean, study after study, doctors walk out, 40% of them haven't even like, you know, bothered to wash their hands between patients. Maybe they'll do a little gel, maybe occasionally. I asked one of my partners a couple of years ago, he'd been practicing for a long time. I said, hey, when was the last time you cleaned your stethoscope with alcohol? Oh man. Never. 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 And, oh, you know, you know put, a, put a condom on that thing, buddy. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I said in that video too, and I meant to say another thing. I said, if we put body cams on healthcare practitioners, that's what you'd see is you'd see errors, you'd see miscommunication, you'd see lack of hand washing. And if that video ever leaked, there would be marches on hospitals demanding to defund healthcare. So let's get our own house in order and let's understand why we might be projecting a little bit and be so upset. Now we're upset for real reasons and those are real, but it's very tough to come from a position of hypocrisy when you're demanding social change. We need to look at our own house as well. I think that people on an individual level in their area of expertise strive for the highest possible quality. I mean, you know, talking about in a generalization, pretty much every doctor I know, APP that I know, nurse that I know, is really diligent about staying up to date on education, about, you know, learning best practices, about learning just like how to practice on the metacognition. I mean, just, you know, really becoming this cerebral Olympian and having excellent manual skills of putting in lines of doing this and that procedure. But there are these little things that don't get the respect that they have based on the, the impact that they have. Hand washing would be an excellent idea. So I think that, you know, quality is extremely important to the individual practitioner, clinician. But I question on a large institutional basis, and the smaller hospitals where I've worked, 
it, it seems like it's really legitimate. But in the bigger hospitals, it feels very inauthentic. I, I think that's really true, again, because we're just not incentivized. Like, I mean, something dumb, like an obstetrician recommending that a pregnant woman get a flu vaccination and um, the other vaccination they need in pregnancy. It's almost, I forget what the percentage was, but it was abysmal. And a lot of times the OB docs don't even carry the vaccines because they're expensive. So they'd have to go to the another practitioner to get it done. And this is such an easy intervention that could prevent a lot of morbidity mortality. Even obstetrics in general, we have such a high maternal mortality rate because we're so focused on child and we forget we don't listen to women. So these are systemic biases that we don't compensate for. Um, you know, we, we call them hysterical and this has been a longstanding bias. And then they die at rates that are unheard of in the developed world. And we've all seen it happen. And, and my producer's wife had a horrible complication during surgery that was entirely, it was a mistake that was preventable. It's, it's again, like you said, individuals, we would be mortified if we thought we were contributing to this. The problem is it gets lost in this bigger complex system. So we do have to develop our systems thinking a little bit better. And doctors in particular and nurses resist this because it's more loss of autonomy is how it's felt. That the individual expert is better than any system, right? Like they feel right, like any right. decision rule or any right. systematic change. And don't put that on me. Who are you to tell me what to do? Exactly. Cookbook medicine, bro. And that is it for today. Oh, Z-Dog MD. What a delight. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to Stimulus, this show on any podcatcher you use. Just look for Stimulus Podcast with Rob Orman. To get complete show notes for every episode, just go to our website, stimuluspodcast.com, or you can actually click on the link for it in your podcatchers right there at the bottom. When you go to our website, you can sign up for our mailing list. You can see some videos and you can also leave some comments. If there's any topic you'd like to hear in the show or perhaps a guest, let me know. Hit us up. Until next time, my friends, be well, stay safe, and keep on rocking.